Hooray for grown up. Yes, thank you, Encounter Band. And thank you, child care workers and teachers and everyone else that is responsible for grown up time. Grown up time is great. I'm just going to chit chat a little bit until all the noise leaves our space of worship. We're in a short series right now on, on parables. And I'll tell you what, guys, it, I'm going to have to do a longer series on parables because this was real hard for me to choose three of them. Once I started looking at the parables, I was like, oh, but that's a really good parable too. So we're going to have to, maybe a summer, summer series on parables would be good. Oh, you hear that? That's the sound of grown-up time. It's so wonderful. Um, okay. Welcome back to Westminster. So we are in a series on parables. This morning we are in the third of three parables. And what I've done for this small series is I'm, I'm taking some of the, the, the better known parables, the ones that you probably heard before, and I'm unpacking them. Because there's a reason the well-known parables become well-known. It's usually because they have something very important to say. Um, after this Sunday, we're going to go into a, a series on how to read your Bible, which I'm super excited about. I will talk about that later in the service. But this Sunday is going to be the last Sunday of our just kind of mini-series on the famous parables of Jesus. And we're tackling this morning one of the most famous and one of the most haunting parables of Jesus. Now, just for context, this comes to us in Matthew 25. Um, this is in a section, this is very, very close to the end of Matthew. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is um, in this kind of final days walk up to the cross. He has just finished sparring with the religious leaders. Um, he's made a scene in the temple. And then walking out of the temple, he gets into a conversation about the end times. In fact, if you look at Matthew 24, Matthew 24 is all about end times and um, temple being destroyed and when the Son of Man comes and glory and judgment and all of these things. And, uh, and one day we'll do a sermon series on Matthew 24. But what happens is as people are asking him about what the end times are going to be, what he does is he goes into a series of parables in Matthew 25. And so that's the context of this. This is one of three parables that Jesus offers because people keep asking him things like, well, when's it going to be? When's it going to be, Jesus? And what Jesus says is quite literally, I don't know. Nobody knows. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. But I'll tell you this. Um, and then he goes into these series of parables. And, and, and what he says in Matthew 24 is, it will be as in the days of Noah. And I love that image because the image of Noah building the ark uh, he built it like 100 miles from any major body of water. And so Noah was like your crazy neighbor who starts building an ark, like a big boat in the suburbs, right? Like that was Noah. And uh, he got this vision that he was supposed to build an ark. So it was, it was sunny. And so Jesus says people were marrying. They were going about their daily lives. They were doing their things. They were contributing to their savings accounts. <laughs> they were doing all the normal things you do in life. And Noah was going about his daily life, getting ready for the day that was going to come. And then all of a sudden, it happened. Um, and so the image of the flood is it happened quickly. And, and so what Jesus is saying is the end times are going to be like that. Everyone's going to be going about their daily lives. And some people will be preparing, and some people won't. But when it happens, it's going to happen. And we're going to find out who is the boat and who doesn't. 
And so then what he does is he goes into three parables about the end times and about how to prepare for the end times. Because the implication of the story of Noah is that you don't know when it's going to come, but you want to be the one building the boat, not the one making fun of the guy who's building the boat. So what does it mean to be building the boat now in anticipation of the day that will come for all of us, whether it is at the end of our life, our earthly life, or Jesus actually comes back and this era of history is over with? What does it look like to be building a boat now? And the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 are all answering that question. And just to give you a word of warning, they are all using very direct, very strong language because Jesus is trying to get people's attention. If you were here last week, we did the parable of the unforgiving servant. In fact, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go listen to it because this parable that we're going to read this morning has a lot in common with the unforgiving servant. In both of them, Jesus uses very strong language because he's trying to get people's attention because what he's talking about matters. And so for all these people who are going about their daily lives thinking a flood is never going to come, Jesus is trying to get them to realize that what he's talking about matters. And so he uses very strong language to get their attention, to wake them up, to try to convince them that they need to start building a boat. So in that context, let's read the famous parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And the king will say to those who are at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Oh, Jesus mean. This is what we did in the last one, too. So if you weren't here last week, we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant, where Jesus literally ends that parable with God sending someone to be tortured. And none of us like those parables, but Jesus uses those parables 
at times when he was trying to get people's attention because what he's talking about is very important. This parable would have had a different feel if he had switched the order, right? If he had talked to the goats first and chastised them and then talked to the sheep second and welcomed them, if, if the positive is the last note, then that kind of sticks in your brain as like, that's the end of the story. Surely I'm going to be a sheep. But if the goats are the last note, that is what sticks in your brain. And that's what's supposed to stick in your brain because Jesus is trying to get their attention and Jesus is trying to get our attention. So let's unpack this a little bit and talk about what is the great danger that Jesus is trying to protect us from. And I do think there's a parallel between this one and the, and the, and the parable of the unforgiving servant that we talked about last week. Because if the great danger that Jesus was trying to protect people from in that parable was unforgiveness and what it does to your heart, then it seems to me that the great danger that Jesus is trying to protect people from in this parable is a self-centered orientation whereby we see all of our successes, failures, needs, and wants very clearly but do not see as clearly the needs of others. A self-centered orientation whereby we see all of our successes, failures, needs, and wants very clearly because we are very focused on them, but do not as clearly see the needs of others. You notice in this parable that both parties were surprised. The righteous were surprised. The unrighteous were surprised. I will bet you that if he goes and talks to the unrighteous and asks them, did you intentionally pass up your friend who needed help and, not, and intentionally not do it? They're going to say, no, I didn't notice. But why didn't they notice? Because the gaze of their attention, at least in my supposition, was entirely focused on themselves. Entirely focused on themselves. And what Jesus is implying here is just as unforgiveness will kill you, self-centeredness will kill you. Selfishness will kill you. Self-orientation, whereby we spend all of our time and all of our energy looking at and caring about ourselves, will kill you. Now, the reason that's important to make a big deal of is because when you are in a season of spending all that time looking at yourself, it doesn't seem dangerous because you don't notice what you're missing. You don't notice what you're missing, right? You're spending all your time thinking about yourself. You're spending all your time thinking about what you want, what you need, or sometimes what you've done. And what God is trying to say here is that your salvation and my salvation are intricately linked not only to our relationship with God, but our ability to pay real attention to our neighbor. This is an echo of the Good Samaritan. Who was the righteous person? The person who walked past the injured man on the street who had a really good reason to walk past the injured man on the street because he was going to a very important business meeting? No. The righteous person was the one who noticed. The one who had enough attention left in his life to see someone suffering and to know that part of his faith commitment was to address the suffering of this person. Now, I do want to say a word here because there's, there's a couple of different directions you go when you talk about why the unrighteous made the choice that they did. And the first one I do think has to be the attention. 
right? I just don't think people have changed that much in 2,000 years, especially since we have that parable of the Good Samaritan. 90% um, of us would walk past a person on the street because we're too busy looking at our cell phones. It doesn't have to do with what we, like if you just asked us what we would do, we would answer one way, but if you actually look at what we would do, our attention is so focused inwardly that most of us would not notice because we are not used to, not accustomed to paying attention to the things outside our own little world, own little sphere. So that's the first thing we have to talk about is, is attention. But the second kind of implication that's, that wiggles its way in here when you're talking about why the unrighteous lived the life they did, made the choices they did, I think comes down to a question that, that arises. So if you start with, I'm not fully aware of people around me, then that leads me naturally into an assumption that if other people have needs, they probably don't deserve my charity because I didn't make the same choices I did. Now, very few of us would say it that callously, but most of us would behave in that manner and some people would say that callously. Like, let's, let's, just, let's just be real here. There are people who would say that. Um, but if I'm not actually, let me put it this way. I was very judgmental of people who could not pay their bills until I started talking to the people who could not pay their bills. Does that make sense? So if I'm at a distance, if I have never talked to someone who couldn't make rent, and so, and so, I've been, I've been self-insulated, self-isolated enough that I've never had this personal inter interaction with somebody who, let's just say, couldn't pay a bill, then that allows me to inhabit a place of judgment where I am no longer the recipient of something, I am the giver of judgment by saying that person must not deserve it because of the choices that they've made. And obviously I do deserve it because of the choices I've made. And the problem with that, well, there's, there's an element of, I'm not going to end this by telling you to give all your money away, okay? Just, let's just calm down. I'm not going to go there, but stay with me because <laughs> the element of judge, judgment that arises from a lack of awareness puts us in the same place as the person who refused to forgive because they thought the other person didn't deserve it, Right? And what was the response to that? God said, you forgive not because they deserve it. You forgive because you don't. You forgive because you were forgiven even though you didn't deserve it. And it is not the other person's merit that spurns your forgiveness. It is God's forgiveness to you, your awareness of that forgiveness, and that shift within you that spurns you into a place of gratitude that then empowers you to forgive others regardless of whether they deserve it or not because, spoiler alert, they don't. And neither do you. Nobody fundamentally deserves forgiveness and yet God forgave. And in a similar way, nobody fundamentally deserves mercy and yet God gave. Nobody fundamentally deserves charity in the, in the real sense of this word. Nobody fundamentally deserves kindness, compassion. And yet what we received from God was nothing less than kindness and compassion. And so I think what Jesus is painting a picture for us, when he's painting the picture of these unrighteousness, of these unrighteous who have spurned the face of God within their neighbor, 
It is an insidious picture of people who have allowed their self-centeredness to create within them a judgment that will then necessarily separate them from God. Because when you judge, you will be judged by the same measure, right? When you condemn, you will be condemned by the same measure. When you forget that you have received that which you do not deserve, you will refuse to give that which you have been commanded to give. When you forget that you have been a recipient of grace, you will think it is your prerogative whether or not to give grace. When you forget that you've been a recipient of forgiveness, you will forget that it is not your prerogative whether or not to give forgiveness. When you forget that God gave you everything you have, regardless of whether or not you deserved it, you will think you are the judge who is willing, who is the one who is capable of giving or not giving, when in fact, you are not. The best you can aspire to be in this life is a sheep. You will never be judge. And whenever we try to arrogate ourselves to the position of judge, all we become are goats. And what Jesus is saying here is, guys, you got to get that out of your system. And I do think Jesus uses the word torture for a reason. I ended last uh, week, I almost said last year's sermon. That's how long this week has been. I ended last week's sermon by saying, if you think forgiveness of hard, unforgiveness is torture. And I think Jesus is doing a similar thing here. If you think generosity is hard, selfishness is torture. Self-centeredness is torture. A life that revolves entirely around yourself is nothing less than torment. And you might not even know how bad it is, which is the scary part. So one of the best illustrations I ever saw of, I mean, that that exists of this in the creative world is uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And I realize that has become so overplayed. It is campy now, right? It's (laughs) Disney-fied. We think of it and we think that it's just like a, 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 an overused stereotypical statement, but you go back and you read the original, it's, it's quite profound. And it is one of the things, one of the pieces of art that reminds me that people really don't change because what Ebenezer Scrooge embodies for us is the person who wants to create their own life, right? Who's entirely focused on himself, who's entirely focused on his needs, his wants, his desires, his motivations. He's entirely focused on what he has and what he wants to keep. And he does not want anyone else's need or want to get into that. And what happens when the three ghosts comes and visits him is he gets a vision of what his life will be like if he gets his wish. Because if he gets his wish, he's going to be miserable. If he gets his wish to live a completely self-absorbed, self-centered life, he's going to be miserable. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus is trying to get our attention and he's using words like torture and he's using words like torment because it's serious because self-centeredness will kill you. Selfishness will kill you. Or worse, it will torture you for the rest of your life and it will end your life as a person who is so disconnected from the people around you that you think you are in fact God. And you have no sense of the reality of who you are and whose you are and what you have received and what this life was all about in the first place. 
What Jesus is saying is what Charles Dickens tried to say a couple hundred years ago. Don't wish for the wrong thing because you might get it. Do not allow selfishness to be your first priority because it might actually happen. And do not allow a lack of awareness to take you down that path whereby you do not see your brother and sister as a brother and sister because it would turn you into a goat. And the good news is there's another, there's another, there's another choice, right? Jesus did not just give us the parable of the goats. I mean, if Jesus had really wanted to be hardcore, he would have just given us the parable of the goats, right? But no, he gave us another option. And the option is this, to in gratitude and humility give and share of our time and of our talents and of what has been entrusted to us, not because other people deserve it, but because we know how much God has given us. Judging less whether or not the visitor deserve, the prisoner deserves a visit and judging more whether or not we are called as a child of God to visit those in prison. Judging less whether the sick person deserves a visit or whether the naked person deserves clothes and judging more whether we as children of God are called to share what God has entrusted to us because that is a central part of how God saves us and we, we neglect it at peril of our souls. And I don't use that phrase at peril of our souls very often. I only do it when Jesus does. And Jesus did it here. Selfishness will kill you. And the antidote to selfishness is a humble, faithful generosity. Generosity of time, generosity of gift, generosity of, of tangible goods, food, water, generosity of spirit. Now we're gonna talk a lot more about this in October. Uh, we do a series every October. It's actually one of my favorite throughout the year because learning how to manage my money, learning how to let God manage my money was life-changing for me. Um, but this is a little preview. This is a little preview. Because what, what Jesus is fundamentally saying here is that cultivating generosity of spirit, allowing God to cultivate within us generosity of spirit is one of the things that make us into the people that God wants us to be. And you notice that the sheep were surprised at the end too, right? And it's because they weren't doing it because they'd calculated the reward in their head. <laughs> they were doing it just because Jesus told them to. They were doing it just because they thought that was what they should do. They were doing it just because they thought that that was a part of their faith and a part of their commitment. And in the end, not only did they bless all of these people, but they became, through that blessing, the people God wanted them to become. They became the sheep who would inherit the kingdom of God. I want to share something with you real quick. I love bragging on this church because I love Westminster so much. And I want to share with you that this church is so committed to the concept of giving that we actually were able to do it um, even with our budget. So I will not get deep into financials, I promise. But just as an overview, there is a kind of a tithe 
a tithe is a portion of a gift that is that is given to others to bless others it's kind of a tithe built into our budget we give about roughly 10 percent um, to other ministries that work out through the denomination to church plants to missions to all those kinds of things that's already built within our budget but recently um, we got a gift we weren't expecting that wasn't going to go into that apportionment um, and the, the question came up within leadership should we tie this? And let me tell you, there was a vigorous debate <laughs> because there always is, right? But what it came down to is if it is money we were not expecting, out of faithfulness, we should give a portion of this directly to the people who are going to use it most. So we were able to make a very generous gift to Elijah Rising that works with human trafficking. I mean, victims of human trafficking. You get works with the victims of human trafficking. We were able to make a very generous gift to a fund within the district that funds creative ministries in churches that do not have financial support for the creative ministries. And we were able to make a very generous con contribution to the fund within this church that helps the people who tangibly need help. And I don't know if I can tell you that was like financially the most sound decision we ever made, but I was so proud. I was so proud because it was the right one. It was the right one. And what we're gonna be doing as we go farther into this series and especially as we get into October is what does it look like for all those small decisions to take root in our lives personally, to take root in our lives as a church, to turn our attention less toward ourselves and more toward God and inevitably toward our neighbor. What does that look like? And how cool would it be if we all were so obviously sheep in this lifetime that there wasn't any question at the end? This parable should scare you, but it shouldn't terrify you because the choice is easy and it is worth making, and it is available every single day of your life. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, we are so grateful for all that we've been given. Um, and we, we want to recognize right now, God, that we are the recipients of great, great gifts from you. We are the recipients of talents and time and treasures. And we are just, we forget so often. We forget, God. We forget that we are not God. We forget that we are not judge. We forget that we are not king. And we forget that you are. And that we have been recipients of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy and of goodness and of abundance. And so forgive us when our hardness of hearts have tried to make us into that which we should not become. God, right now I pray for the people in this congregation. I pray for those who are held by selfishness. God, I pray for those whose hearts are bound by greed. God, I pray for those whose hearts are carrying a weight of scarcity. God, I pray for those whose hearts are turning them away from the person you would have them become. And I pray right now that you would come with your grace. And if there is one thing, God, that could come into their heart right now, God, may it be gratitude. Gratitude. Awareness, acknowledgement, and gratitude of all that you have given us. Come, Holy Spirit, we are yours. Break our hearts open that we might be filled with what you have to give us. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.